You're listening to Booth One. Well, welcome back to Booth One, my friends, where we celebrate the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. Gary Zabinski, your host here, happy to be recording during this holiday season, and I'm particularly happy to have at my side today our very special co-host, the adorable and huggable Roscoe. Hi, Roscoe. Hi, how are you? Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) I must have been on Santa's good list this year, and I I feel like Christmas has come early. Well, Just wa- having you on the show. I wanted to be here before I started my new job, so I'm excited that we have a final opportunity. Your new job is someplace in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, isn't it? No. Oh. I haven't told you yet. I was saving it until we got on the air. Okay. I have a big new job that I'm very excited about. I start right after the first of the year. I am going to be the new chief of staff at the White House. <laughs> I don't know if congratulations are in order or not. I know. Well, no one else would take it, so I thought I would do the job. And I yeah, could, how did that phone call go? You know, I had my talking points in front of me, good, and I good. hit all my marks, good. and he was very impressed, and I um, was sycophantic, and we thought it would be a brave and unusual choice to have a broken-down middle-aged gay man be his chief of staff. Does he know that you're partially bald? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was um, he's a big he's a big hair guy. He's a big hair person. That's yeah. why he wouldn't yeah. hire John Bolton because he yeah. didn't like that his mustache grew over his lips. <laughs> Congratulations! I guess I can't wait to see how it goes. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks. I, I, you know, maybe in and out faster than Anthony Scaramucci, but we'll see. What else have you been doing to get in the holiday spirit, Roscoe? Have you been watching holiday movies? Have you been going to holiday movies? This is a trap. Yes. <laughs> I don't mean to trap oh, I you. I have a great story to tell you. I'm from DeKalb, Illinois, and DeKalb has a historical old movie theater, the, the Egyptian Theater, that was built during that craze, and it's the only one that is completely intact and looks like a million dollars. They showed the other day, It's a Wonderful Life, on the big screen in this 2,000-seat auditorium. They were sold out. And they rigged it so during the last scene when he's running back to his house in the snow, snow began falling on the audience. No. Yeah. Ivory When flakes. he's running and going, hello, yes. the old building and, alone, and, and, and hello, appa- Emporium. Yes. And apparently the place went up for grabs and everyone had the greatest time. So I thought that was a great idea. I don't know how they did it. Other than that, I'm writing a thesis on the Hallmark holiday movies. The, <laughs> did you watch these? The Christmas movies? They're unspeakably dreadful. And I thought I was really on to something by discovering how dreadful they were. Everyone in the world I talked to has watched these. It it is amazing the level of popularity they have and that everyone knows they're horrible, but they watch them anyway just to celebrate their horribleness. And they they have actors and actresses on those movies that are somehow almost famous. You've almost heard of them, and they kind of look like somebody you've seen before, but then you look at the credits, and I don't recognize a single right. name. You've but, been watching a lot of these. Yeah, and they're intoxicating. <laughs> <laughs> you also know that, that it's very safe. Uh, they follow a specific template. You know nothing bad is ever going to happen. No one is ever going to get hurt. No one's ever going to have their feelings hurt. Everyone will be happy. No one's going to die on Christmas Eve. No one's going to die on Christmas Eve. Run over by a reindeer. Right. No one's going to take their clothes off. Not even men. You you hardly even see a man in a T-shirt for crying out loud. Wow. I think it points to the decline of Western civilization, but I think we had other things we wanted to talk about more extensively today. I think so. I should bring on our guests, and I am so pleased to welcome into our holiday booth today the artist and illustrator and well-known Chicago personality. Can I say that you're well-known? Sure, am I? (laughs) (laughs) After this program, you will be. This is Tom Bactel. Tom Bactel is a self-taught artist, and we'll get to that in a few moments, who's been an illustrator and caricaturist for many, many years, works for The New Yorker for, for 23 years, at least 23. He's done work for Entertainment Weekly, Newsweek, Forbes, Bon Appetit, Town and Country, Mother Jones, New York Poetry, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal, and you've uh, done some illustrations for Marshall Field and Land's End, I understand. 
Yes. Uh, that was, uh, I got my start drawing for Marshall Fields. Which you call the late Marshall Fields in your bio, which I loved. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to be correct. Okay. Yeah, right, the right. sad, sad. Yeah. His brush and ink style is considered to be reminiscent of American cartoonists from the 1920s and 1930s. And your drawing style, Tom, let me start off with this question with you, has been described as fluid and spontaneous. Do you agree with that assessment? It is. I, I would say my finished drawing style is fluid and spontaneous, and sometimes it takes a lot of work to get to that point. But your your work process is not always fluid and spontaneous. Is any of our work processes? <laughs> I guess no. not. What, what, it, w- walk us through it. What do you mean it takes a while to get to that point? The drawings themselves, I try to make them look lively and and breezy, and uh, at least in 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 the, in the drawing, but. It takes a lot of work to get to that point, so it means doing a lot of research, often mm. doing a lot of sketches. Usually, my, I sketch in a different medium than than I do my finished work, I, and I my finished work is in brush and ink. But once I haul out the brush and the ink, and I start trying to create that, it, things don't always go right, and. Plus, I, 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 there's all kinds of things I want to introduce into the drawings. And then, but then ultimately, it's like putting on a show, you know, theater. You, you put lots of rehearsal time into something, or, um, and you, ma- you want to make it look natural and, and effortless. And, and, um, but you, you know how yeah. hard it is. You don't, right? you don't want them to see the work. Just right, see right. the you don't boom. Want, yeah. Here, I just sat down and drew this, and aren't I brilliant? Because I thought about five different right. things and that I put into which this. Is, uh, which is great when I can convey that, and that's, that is you know, ultimately what I, I want to convey. Although there are people who people have different reactions to that. Some people see that and they think, wow, that's really, you must, you must just whip those things off, you know? And can you whip one off for me right now? And, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you're not a sidewalk yeah. artist. Yeah, you don't, like you don't do that. Actually, 45th and Broadway. I'll do, actually, hey, I'll do your caricature. That, that was actually, I didn't start out doing caricatures, and I was in, uh, introduced to them because people needed them. But I was kind of horrified at first when I was asked to do them because I didn't know how to do them, and, and that was my nightmare. My association with caricature work was the people at an amusement park or carnival who were sitting there drawing people and, you know, didn't really look like them. And I'll go back to what I mentioned earlier. You're a self-taught artist. Right. Did you take this up at a young age and just decide this is something I want to do? I, I could go through your youth and your career uh, as a musician and as a dancer, but you eventually decided to work as a an artist. Right, right. I always drew, and I was always obsessed with cartoons, particularly actually uh, New Yorker cartoons. And I come from an artistic family. My mom was, was an artist, and she just introduced us to it at a very young age. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know if other people had this experience, but my mother would sit us around the a table as we're sitting here now and haul out manila pads and markers and, and we would sit around and we would draw we'd have and I would have the time of my life and and so I did that forever but I was also kind of I was also very academically oriented and and so drawing was was always kind of something fun that I did on the side and mm-hmm. it never didn't seem like completely like a legitimate pursuit mm-hmm. so I did all those things in tandem yeah. did, did that happen to you Gary did your mother did your family sit around the table drawing no, they sat around the table playing penny ante poker. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say that my mother might throw a coloring book at me and say, stop crying, I have to cook your dad dinner. <laughs> you know how he gets the food isn't on the table at six. You said you sort of fell into this, where you sort of known as like the guy that, oh, he's, he's a pretty good artist, I need someone to draw a face of me for a theater program. Or how, did that, how did it start? There, the- w- there was a lot of that, always. But I really didn't decide to become a cartoonist until after I, I graduated from, from college. And I went to, I studied English and music and... You went to conservatory to study, right, to I, study I, music. I, there's a, I went to uh, a joint program at Case Western Reserve University and the Cleveland Institute of Music. And I, so I, and I studied modern dance there. I was, I was, like, I was a classic sort of renaissance man, liberal arts major. I studied everything. 
And ultimately, that I think was good for me because I just have a lot of interest in it, and it, and it, and I think I call on those things when I'm drawing. Did you? draw throughout that entire period then? Were you drawing uh, pictures of friends? I, I was kind of doing it for friends. I on the see. Side. So, and I, and I, I, I knew a lot of art students and I kind of knew, I knew there was a reason that I was, you know, drawn to art students and to art. And, but it wasn't until I got out of college that I just sort of thought, well, wait a minute, you know, I, what am I going to do if I become, if I go into music, I'm going to become a piano teacher. There are great piano teachers out there. I don't think I would have been one of them. And Is that what you studied, keyboards? I studied piano and harpsichord, right? And harpsichord. Right, right. And I got a, I got a job. I had an internship when I was a senior in college at a PR firm, and, and that was not a good fit. You were not an illustrator for the PR firm. No, you, no, I was. Uh, I, I, I was an account executive. Yeah, one of my uh, accounts was Lake Erie, <laughs> <laughs> the only dead lake of the five great ones. <laughs> but I, I kind of had an epiphany that I could become a cartoonist. You know, it's sort of it's that kind of self knowledge that that it was something that I could do, and I figured that. Uh, in my sort of youthful, arrogant way, that I could develop my own style and everything. And then, and there's a story that I tell about uh, telling my dad this because he wanted. To, he sort of sat me down. He, my dad was a scientist and wonderful, wonderful man. But he want he sat, sat me down. He wanted to know just what I, what I was what was I going to be doing with with the rest of my life. And I said, well. I'm going to become a cartoonist. <laughs> and he just looked at me and said, you are? Well, but you're not very funny. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and your response to that was, thanks, Dad? Or oh, in, in My internal response was, I'm going to show you. you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course I did. And he became one of my biggest boosters ultimately. I mentioned that you've been working for The New Yorker for many, many years. Most of our listeners will probably recognize your work from the section Talk of the Town, Mm -hmm. which is that very first section with the short uh, articles about profiles of people or something that happened or a poodle on a bus or something like that. You have created those caricatures at the top of each of those columns. You have a show that I wanted to mention, a new show. Have you ever shown your work in a, in a large gallery like the one that's happening now? And I'll mention the details in a moment. Never quite like the one now. I did have, I, w- I had a show through the uh, Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs at Water Tower, at the Water Tower, which is a wonderful gallery. And I don't know if you've, if you've mm-hmm. been there, but I actually was not familiar with that space until uh, I had the show there, but it was, I think, six years ago. And other than that, I've had I had a, a little uh, I've had a show uh, at the Cliff Dwellers, but never at a never at a gallery gallery. Well, this show is at the Adventureland Gallery, and it runs until the 29th of December. That's at 1513 Northwestern. And it's operated by our friend Tony Fitzpatrick. In fact, uh, he's got a show in the next room next to yours. He was in Paris filming the second season of Patriot, and he got inspired, and he's got a show called The Absinthe Birds. That's absinthe, not absent. Absinthe Birds, A Love Letter to Paris. That's running through January 15th. Tell me how this show came about. Did he come to you and twist your arm, or did he say, you really need to get your pieces out there? It was a little bit of that. I mean, it didn't take a lot of arm twisting. I mean, but it was... Tony and I have... have, We've known each other over the years and spoken periodically, and it it kind of came up, and he's, you know, he was very nice about it, and just, he's, he's so supportive. And... Our conversations about it kind of accelerated, and all of a sudden it sort of sort of fell into place. I think well, at the end of the summer, yeah, and I just uh, I was I was thrilled to to try it. And it just opened last week. Our producer was there, and she said there was a huge crowd, and many people were very excited to see your stuff. And I 
am told that you did very well in the sale of your pieces, which is fantastic. Congratulations that on that. Thank you. Thank you. If you're sitting next to someone in an airplane and they go, hey, what do you do for a living? Have you learned over the years how to, how to change how you answer that question? What, what do you say? Well, I, I usually very quietly say, um, I, I'm a cartoonist. <laughs> and then, and then they'll, they'll say, oh, well, have I seen any of your stuff? And, and, then, and then I usually say, well, I do mostly work for magazines. And then, and then I might mention the New Yorker. Mm. And, then, and then, you know, that just kind of opens the door. Do they, do they think immediately that you've written comic books? Is that where their mind kind of goes to? It's hard to, to tell. I mean, I, yeah. yeah. Not everybody, but mm. sometimes people do, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, they're, and they're different. They're different genres, you know. Yeah. And then, how do how do you if they if you don't happen to have a copy of your work in your lap, how do you describe what it looks like? Well, generally, I will, you know, I'll talk about the caricatures, uh, the caricature work, which is a huge part of what I do. Not all of what I do, uh, and then I will. I often will say that I kind of that my my style harkens to classic cartoonists such as you you mentioned you know mm. people like Peter Arno and Charles Adams and Thurber if we get in if we get that far because I that was the period that I in cartoon in, in cartooning that I was obsessed with when I was a, a child and and I still am and that's it's a sort of a romantic marker I guess and for me and then I'll talk about I have sort of a loose drawing style and witty whatever yeah our our producer purchased uh, a drawing of yours of ruth bader ginsburg with a big blue background and i can't wait to get that in the house it's fantastic you've drawn so many people over the years including in your show uh, not just people like hillary clinton and as we said rgb but Adolf Hitler as well. Did the Hitler drawing sell very well? I don't think the Hitler drawing has sold. <laughs> and, Yay! Yeah. And what, what was the context for that? The Hitler drawing was, again, uh, it was for a piece in Talk of the Town. And it was about, and I can't remember the name of the author, but someone wrote a book, maybe in the past year, about Nazis and drugs oh did nazis take lots of drugs this is something Apparently i don't this, know this is a, a theory oh and uh, i think there actually may be some evidence for it so i had to draw hitler for this piece and they're they're usually the the new yorker is 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 pretty good about sort of letting me play with the the uh, the visual the visuals and but that was a tough one and because you know Hitler you know it was, it was also around the same time that I was doing a lot of Trumps and and you know this idea of I don't know dealing with like really awful people and making kind of funny drawings or uh, of, of them and so that was that was part of what I what it was thinking now that I think now that I'm, as I recall it and then all of a sudden it sort of like clicked into place and I started thinking about Mel Brooks and Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I thought, Springtime for Hitler, Hitler, Summer of Love. And so I put Hitler in a, you know, a tie-dye t-shirt and, you know, on a, on a flat, you know, on an acid trip. And, and, <laughs> oh, brilliant. And, you know, it works. Yeah, so that's kind mm-hmm. of, that's, that's sort of an example of, like, the process. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a marvelous drawing. I find your work pretty much all across the board, Tom, to be actually quite flattering to the people that you're drawing. Mm-hmm. They are caricatures, but they're not so much making fun of the figure. They're just emphasizing various features of them. Mm-hmm. Is that generally your approach? Do you try to be very respectful of the subject? Well, let me, let me ask you another question, if, that's a, if I can. And that is, what's the feeling that you get from the drawings? Do you get a feeling of respectfulness? I do. I get a feeling of humor, but not being laughed at. Okay. Uh, they, they just, they kind of make me smile. Okay. And they're instantly recognizable as whoever they are. And 
that's that's my immediate impression. You ask a good question, and that is, what do what do we see when we're trying to portray somebody, and or what what do we choose to show? And that's a huge part, uh, I think, of the of the process of my drawings. I think that when I'm when I'm drawing somebody, and th- I, I spend a lot of time just looking at them and thinking about them. And like, and 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 trying to see, you know, what do I see? And you know, I think when we look at when we look at anybody, we tend to see we see all sorts of things. We see good things, we see crazy things, we see bad things, you know. And people are kind of bundles of ambiguity. And I think that that that's kind of what I like to capture in in portraits is that it's not, you know, I'm it, I'm not doing some kind of gross. You're not commenting on them or editorializing well, I, on them. Well, I think I feel that I am, but I think, but I also want people to go away, come away from it by making some of their own decisions about how they feel about it. I'm, 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 I think ultimately what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to present things to people. I'm trying to present things about somebody, and you can you can take it as you as you wish. You know, I'm just I'm trying to be. A, as honest as I can, but I do like to I do like to make things kind of fun, like a little whimsical. Yeah, I do. I uh, but also serious too. You know, does I, it need to be reflective of the piece that it's illustrating? They don't just say draw a picture of Hitler. They say it's Hitler and it's a book specifically about X Y Z. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'll definitely get the the copy. Uh, and although this gets in a little bit into the the way things are, 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 are produced now, but uh, a lot of times stories are being written while, while I'm drawing, but, but ideally I will have some kind of text. And so, and, and an art director really, an editor really count on me to uh, create something that matches the mood of the, mm-hmm. of the text. And I, I like doing that. I think that's really, mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge part of what I do. Do you have to do several tries at it sometimes? They say, oh. mm, this isn't the right tone or tenor oh, for the piece. Yeah, always, always. And and the other thing is that I, I don't mind that. You know, I, I tend to do that anyway. I, I will, with any, with any drawing assignment, I will send in 30 versions of something. Interesting. And... Wow. Um, yeah, and then so we can kind of narrow it down that way. Yeah. Is there anyone that you dread drawing because they're they're just difficult to get to the essence of or capture? Uh, well, that that dread I dread, I'm sorry. That's no, the, I mean that's not a bad okay. it's, it's not it's not bad. It's just that that I, do I think about that much in advance? No, probably not. Not until I actually start drawing some somebody somebody like Donald Trump can be dreadful to draw. But not always, and kind of some of that depends on my mood. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't forget that I work on deadlines, so I don't have a choice when you know I have to like turn turn the high beams on onto people. One of the worst, one of the hardest kind of hardest kind of people for me to draw are the people who are sort of blandly attractive. Yeah. I mean, if, speaking of blandly attractive, if, if they, but, but that makes sense, doesn't it? You know? Yes, sure, right. sure. And then do you, do you shake it up a little sometimes? If you, I mean, if you had to do four thousand caricatures of Trump, do you say, you know, on this assignment, I'm going to ap- emphasize his mouth Absolute, instead of his ab- absolutely. eyebrows? Absolutely, that's what I think we all do. You know, I something I've been thinking about recently is that, like many people, when I came to Chicago. What did I do? I took improv classes, you know, <laughs> because I think that that speaks to my sense of, of playfulness, you know, our, our history of improv. And as an artist who's con- constantly developing, how do you develop? How do you, you develop by changing and by trying new things and by playing? And so that's how I make things interesting is to is to try a slightly different approach today try a different brush try looking at Donald Trump in a different way mm. you know, try emphasizing mm. something mm, yeah. else I mean that's what makes it fun that's ultimately what makes the work fun you can see it in the work yeah. I wanted to give a shout out to Kirk Douglas 
who turned 102 years old this week. Also to a few other centenarian actors. Do you know any of these people, Olivia de Havilland, Roscoe? No, I have no <laughs> idea who she is. Also, Although she and Kirk Douglas are now dating, which is Also exciting. 102. Yes. They're 204 wow. together. Diana Sarah Carey. Oh, that's baby Peggy. Baby Peggy. Baby, baby Peggy. She's exactly 100 She's years exactly old. She's exactly 100. She was a silent movie. She was the uh, female equivalent of Jackie Coogan oh, in the okay. early 1920s. She didn't work for a major film studio, so she history does not remember her as well as they do Jackie Coogan. But she, uh, she spent a lot of time rescuing her own films in later years because they just she couldn't find any prints anywhere. She became an author and a cinema historian yes. in, in many ways. Yes. I once walked, walked with her down Hollywood Boulevard. But anyway, who else is over, wow. over 100? Marsha Hunt, American actress who worked at Paramount and MGM. She was blacklisted in the 50s and became a huge supporter of liberal causes. She's 101. Yeah. Julie Gibson, also an American actress and singer, she is Hollywood's oldest known living performer from the Golden Age. She is 105. What is her name? Julie Gibson? Julie Gibson. She does not have a stellar career as an actress. She appeared in a number of you know, right. unrecognizable yeah. films. But she did do a few Three Stooges episodes oh, okay. <laughs> in, you, in the 40s. Okay. Do you know who Marsha Hunt is? The last big role I remember having, she's the mother in Johnny Got His Gun. Because she was blacklisted and was written by Dalton Trumbo, who uh-huh. was also blacklisted. Sure. And, and I've met her a few times. And she was great friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, of all people. They met in Hollywood in the 30s. And every time they were both in the same city together, they'd get together for lunch. Also, Norman Lloyd, who is a working actor. And he's... 104. You could uh, see uh, Norman Lloyd in movies like Spellbound. He also went on to produce Hitchcock's television series, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents series, and appeared in over 60 films and television shows, including Limelight and then Dead Poets Society, The Age of Innocence. And in the 80s, he was Dr. Daniel Oshlander on the medical drama St. Elsewhere. Wow. And he is still working at yeah. 104. Yeah. He's, isn't he the guy that falls off the torch of the Statue of Liberty at the end of Saboteur? Mm. I'll have to look that up. Listeners, write in. Also, Don Lusk. Don Lusk is 105 and was an American animator. Worked for the Walt Disney Company. Some of his more notable work was on Pinocchio, Fantasia, Bambi, Song of the South, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp. You name it, oh. he worked on them, and he's 105. Also, Faye McKenzie, American actress oh who starred in silent films as a child, but who is perhaps best known for the leading roles in five Gene Autry films from the 1940s. She's also exactly 100 years old. Yes, well, stop. This is creepy. I know her nephew, Brian Cooper, and Faye McKenzie also came to this film festival and they showed the movie that she had made wow. called Abe Lincoln. And she was a two years old at the time. Well, congratulations, Kirk Douglas and all the other people on the list there. <laughs> Tom, let me ask you this. Can you name me, and this is probably an unfair question. Can you name me say three of your top 10 favorite subjects that you've done illustrations or a drawing of? I have a couple of favorite drawings. Some of them are in the show. I, there's an Abe Lincoln that I drew that I, I, I love that drawing. And I couldn't, it was one of those drawings that I was sitting there, like I was, I almost had an out of body experience watching it, it happen. And I just thought, how do people do this? And how do we as artists do this kind of thing? Because my, I saw the image on the page and I just tried chasing after it with a brush. I think that's probably true of some of my other f- sort of favorite drawings is that I, I like them for almost remembering the sensual, I think, act of actually drawing them. I drew a picture of Jackie Kennedy that was, was also in the show and that kind of, that sort of appeared also. I drew a picture of, of Lily Tomlin that I really like. Mm. I think, you know, this sort of gets back a little bit to one of your earlier questions about the way I, I portray people. 
I try to embrace everybody's physicality. I, I, I think maybe I just sort of naturally love, you know, love different kinds of physicality, but that seems to be the one way that it kind of just makes something work is if I say, I love this, I love your features, let's try to draw this. And, and I actually like some of the Trump drawings that, I, that, that I've done mm. because he's really hard, I, he was really hard for me to draw because he's such a difficult character. Yeah. And when it comes together, it's just a great feeling. Do you do illustrations just to do them to sell just, them? Like I, say, I, just, I feel like drawing a picture of Jackie Kennedy today. Or is, there, is there always a context for why you're doing it? There is often a context, but not always. And I think one of the things that I sort of discovered over time was that I'm happiest and I'm, I think I'm most successful in drawing when I feel that I'm drawing for somebody. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Just as an actor or somebody who's on stage or who's performing, you do have a sense that you are giving something to your audience. And I think that, that when I'm, my sort of whole artistic being is working well, I'm actually aware of my audience while I'm sitting there drawing. I feel, I feel like this one's going out to you, you know? I want to go back to something you mentioned. You minored at Case Western Reserve University in dance. I understand that you also teach dance. Do you, do you still teach some sort of dance classes? Well, off and on. I, I'm basically just enmeshed in the swing dance scene. In swing Chi- dance, yeah. Right. Uh, in Chicago, which means I, I don't care how I do it. I go out to the Green Mill and I dance to the the, the Fat Babies on Tuesday nights, and or I, you know, get together. I make, is that, is I that make, a band? Is that a the I Fat go, Babies? You don't know the Fat Babies? No, no I, I'm t- sorry. Tell us about this. Oh my God, the, we know nothing. Um, about. Are they a swing band? They're kind of hot Charleston, ah. uh, a sort of late Charleston, early swing. It's an eight piece eight-piece band, and they are fan- fantastic. They've been on the the Humanities Festival. Mm. Every Tuesday night, they're at, at the Green Mill. It has kind of a small dance floor, but if I go early for the nine, nine o'clock set, usually I can often have the dance floor to myself with my, you know, with another, with a partner. So I love that. And so I may do that, or I may, I may take classes, or I may help teach class, or I may do some performing myself. And yeah, I just, I, I love it. <laughs> I didn't know there was an underground swing dance movement in Chicago. <laughs> oh, uh, but that's the kind of dancing you teach, right? Yeah. You're not teaching ballet. No, the kind of dance, when you mentioned college, I mean, that was modern dance. But uh, this is, yeah, this is definitely swing dance it's i regard it as a folk dance because it is no. it's, it's america's folk dance people often ask me if i do ballroom dancing i don't uh it's a whole different genre and one of the other things about swing dancing and as a folk dance it's improvised so oh. there there while there may be and there are steps that are associated with with it it is completely made up and you're improvising it with a partner so I get a lot of exercise both physically and and spiritually and, and mentally with with swing dancing and do you teach people this yeah, swing yeah. dancing as well yeah, you, yeah. You, are you at a, are you at a well, school I'm, I'm, somewhere I'm not, I'm not at, at Tom Bechtel's school of dance or anything oh. but, but <laughs> <laughs> And I had a I had a Balboa club. I don't know if you know what the Balboa is, but it's it's another form of swing dance. There's some of the big forms are Lindy, Charleston, Shag, Balboa. Um, you did the Shag, Ross. I did the Shag. <laughs> so this goes back to your love of 20s and 30s art. Totally, you're just, you're dancing yeah, from the yeah, same you know, time period. Right, and coming at it from a lot of different angles. I think one of the common denominators I finally realized is rhythm you know, and movement, and that there's that in dance, there's actually, there's, there's rhythm and movement in my drawing, and, and I'm also a musician, you know, and so these, these, are, these things are very important to me. We haven't done this in a while, but I have a good times and bum times segment, Roscoe. 
in our Good Time segment, and this is such a heartwarming story, Bob Wilson traveled from Los Angeles to Northern California with two suitcases full of $1,000 checks. I know, it sounds weird, doesn't it? The 89-year-old businessman was horrified when he read how wildfire had ravaged the town of Paradise and left 90% of his high school students homeless. Determined to help, he spent hours writing checks for each of the school's 980 students and 105 teachers, administrators, custodians, and bus drivers. Then he trekked 500 miles north to the city of Chico near Paradise, where he handed out the $1.1 million worth of checks in person. Good intentions are just good intentions, he said, unless you act on them. Isn't that the most amazing story? Yeah, that's great. He wrote 1,000 checks for $1,000 each and went and handed them out to people, devastated by the fire. Bum times. Bum times. Bum times for Presbyterians. This, is, this goes right to the heart of your upbringing, Roscoe, who now outnumber Presbyterians, Wiccans. Oh, no. In the U.S., according to a report in uh, ChristianPost.com, Wicca, which encompasses a number of pantheistic belief systems, including witchcraft. <laughs> yeah, this is something your mother will love. You're going to have to tell her next time you see her. Uh, now has 1.5 million adherents compared to 1.4 million Presbyterians. Wow. You need to start. Well, th- this my father was a minister, which we should p- put in here. A Presbyterian in my, minister. He was trained at a Presbyterian seminary here in Chicago, but he was a United Church of Christ Congregationalist, oh, yeah. which is what the Pilgrims were, which that's, is that's what I always what say I, for shorthand. Yeah. Oh. You guys are going to have to start being fruitful and multiply. The Presbyterians. Oh, I was going to say, that's not going to happen. <laughs> not you personally. Well, this, yeah, my mother's been talking about this for 40 years. No one goes to church anymore. Hmm. Yeah. They're all out in the woods practicing. <laughs> They're all out in the woods, or they don't dress appropriately. My mother will still get dressed up for church. Mm, mm, yeah. It's just crazy. Tom, do you have a favorite classical artist like a Van Gogh or Rembrandt? I mean, you do such very specific portraiture. Do you have a favorite uh, of, of the classical artists? You, you mentioned Rembrandt, and I, I remember recently looking at, uh, studying some Rembrandt and just my, having my breath taken away mm. by his ability to, again, he, he was doing self-portraits, and that, I mean, can you imagine how, how difficult that is? Have you done one of you? I've done a few, and mm. it, they're very. It's very hard. You have to be. I have to be as unsparing mm. with myself as I am with everybody else, because you have to see, you know. And 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 Rembrandt was was seeing, so that, yeah. so that I find that yeah, he's he's a he's a good choice. Not only seeing it, but by candlelight, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If I paid you enough, could you do a? caricature of me and Roscoe? I would, I would love to, but it's not something that I can just, you know... As you have we all said the time earlier, in the world. Right, right. Yeah, as we said earlier, you're not a sidewalk <laughs> right, or, right, right, or right. state fair right. caricature. Not, not to put our guests on the spot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, no, I'm not going to draw a picture of you. <laughs> I think it'd be fantastic <laughs> to I, have I've one I've never been so insulted yeah. in all my life. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Tom, occasionally on our program, we play a little parlor game called Chat Pack. And these are questions that are intended to elicit some sort of personal response and find out a little bit more about ourselves and our guest. Mm-hmm. Would you be game to play this with us for a few minutes? Sure. Fantastic. Why don't you choose one of those and read that off they, to they us? And we'll all play. What is one trip you have never taken but would really like to take someday? A cruise up the Nile. I'd like to go to Maui, which I'm doing next week. Next. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe China. Really? Mm-hmm. See the Great Wall? Yeah, yeah. I don't know that this is the greatest time to visit, but um, yeah, someday. I would like to see some place that would be difficult for me to get to otherwise, like Moscow. How about, to take uh, how about I, Mars? I, I, Do you think Moscow. Mars would be too far for you to go? <laughs> <laughs> to the moon, Alice. 
But I think there can be a lot of you know places that are just really inaccessible to those of us right now in, in the year 2018. Yeah. Let's play another one. What do you think is the best conversation piece in your home? At this red hot moment, mm-hmm. it's probably our new Christmas tree that we've put up for the holidays and decorated beautifully. In the, in the long run, it's probably this Dream Girls poster in French behind me. Ah, yes. Yeah. I, w- I will always think of it. Very large. When I think of you. And, and you were involved in the production. And I was so involved in the production. It was like, the revival. You were the first Effie, I believe. <laughs> I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going. going. <laughs> How about you, Roscoe? I think my favorite piece is I have a large poster. They're called personality posters, and this is from about 1932, and it's of Ramon Navarro, who starred in the original Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur. It's beautiful. So I just like the look of it. Tom, what do you think is the most highly the best conversation, conversation piece, piece in your home? In your home. Uh, there are two that draw conversation and one is a well they're they're both kind of art pieces but one is a portrait of a woman and it's it's kind of a a bas relief so that there's the portrait and then her there's actually a construction so her arm comes out and with her with her hand that looks like it's it's about to hit you and the title of the painting is backhand and (laughs) (laughs) oh great yeah so who doesn't see that and go, oh, my God, this is fabulous. Right, right. So that's one. And the other one is uh, I actually have a fairly large volcano on, on wheels that I, I did for, uh, as a set piece for a, a stage production. Do you remember City Lit? You know City Lit? Yeah, sure. sure. Um, they did a, a, an adaptation of Linda Berry's The Good Times Are Killing Me. And I, I did the sets with um, my friend David Sisko. I love that show. Oh, wasn't, it a, the, yeah. wasn't it a wonderful show? And it ran, was this 30, it ran forever. 30 years ago, maybe. Yeah. It's about growing up and in, you know, in a diverse community and, uh, and just the, the, t- the times that were changing, you know, in the 60s. And, and yeah. yeah. What I most fondly remember about the show is it brought back the expression, which I had forgotten, as if. Oh, as yeah. if, right. right. I, and can I go to the movies with you? As if. <laughs> 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 so, as if, Gary, would you like to read? Sure, we'll do one more. This is fun. If you could take any job for just one month, any job, what job would you like to have and assume that you would have the skills and knowledge to perform this job adequately? I'd probably be a, uh, a gymnast. add that to the list roscoe please of the renaissance man i would like to be cleopatra riding down a barge on the nile actually i'd like to be the president of the united states and undo all the damage that's been done so far put the epa back on track change all the things that have been signed off. Well, on you'll be able to destroyed. influence that as the new chief of staff. <laughs> the new, that's right. You that's can, right. Uh, to, to bring us back to the beginning of the show. Shuffle papers yes, on the desk yes. and he'll Here, sign Mr. anything. Mr. Trump, just sign this. Sign. <laughs> it's going to get you some, it's going to get you two more votes in Kansas. Yeah. I think maybe for a month, I think maybe I'd like to be a jet fighter pilot. Oh, absolutely. I could see you doing that. You'd be, you'd be very serious and prim, and you'd know exactly when to look down at the dials and pull back on the thing. Pull back and on I'd the say, thing. Hey, it's Gary. called the throttle, yeah. Roscoe, oh. not the thing. Roger. And I'd say, yeah, Roger. Hey, hey, Gare. And I said, and you could say, hey, we're just uh, approaching warp speed here. Can you hold on, Ross? <laughs> or whatever the jet fighter pilots do. Yeah, you're doing The speed of sound. Well. The speed of sound. Right. The you're speed breaking of sound. the speed of sound. The, the That's sound what I was barrier. Referring yeah. to. Yeah. Tom, we generally end our episodes with a segment where we celebrate the life of someone that we've just lost, or either in show business or not, sometimes famous, sometimes not famous. Uh, They could be anybody. Today, I'd like to talk about a gentleman who uh, we lost just last week. Uh, While other magicians breathe fire, sawed women in half, or made entire buildings disappear, Ricky Jay performed remarkable feats using little more than the pads of his fingers. Did you ever see Ricky Jay do his act live? Here in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. 
his magic tricks were nothing less than works of art. Head-scratching, wonder-inducing achievements that made him perhaps the most gifted sleight-of-hand artist alive. So said a 1993 article in The New Yorker. Ricky Jay was a particularly interesting-looking man. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'd probably do an excellent, excellent caricature of him. Mr. Jay treated a deck of cards as a living being to be carried with seriousness and handled with sensitivity. Nonetheless, he was also prone to toss a card into the air like a boomerang, and in some shows, he impaled a watermelon rind with a card thrown at speeds approaching 90 miles an hour. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Mr. J began performing magic tricks at age four, went on to hone his act on TV variety shows and on tours where he opened for people like musicians Ike and Tina Turner. Fantastic. He'd come out and do his magic act on stage before their shows. In front of 10,000 people. You'd think. Can you all see this Queen of Hearts? Name a card! <laughs> yep, it's the Queen of Hearts. <laughs> He began to reach an international audience by the early 1990s and received a special Obie Award citation for Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants, which premiered off-Broadway in 1994, directed by his friend, the playwright David Mamet. A collector of decaying dice, faded advertisements for circus artists, and magic books that dated to the 16th century. That's hard to... Fathom. He probably knew more about the history of American conjuring than anyone else alive. He was hired to create cinematic deceptions for movies such as The Escape Artists and The Natural, for which he taught Robert Redford how to pull a coin out of somebody's ear. With his friend Michael Weber, a fellow magician, he formed the consulting company Deceptive Practices. I think that's a great name. It'd be a good name for a detective agency as well. Our producer always wanted to form a detective agency, be a private detective. I could see you doing that. Wouldn't as she well. be fantastic mm-hmm. at yes. that? Yeah. Which offered arcane knowledge on a need to know basis. And he devised the wheelchair for, get this, Gary Sinise's character in Forrest Gump, wow. a military veteran and double amputee. He also performed as an actor appearing in the HBO Western Deadwood as a villain in James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies and as a cameraman in Boogie Nights. He was featured in Heist and other films directed by David Mamet who said they bonded over a shared interest in fraudsters and cons. Here's a great story. Once while performing at a New Year's Eve event in Los Angeles, Mr. J was asked by a guest named Mort (laughs) to, quote, do something truly amazing. It's all in the details, Tom. It's all in the details. So Mr. J asked him to name a card, and Mort settled on the Three of Hearts. After shuffling, Jay gripped the deck in the palm of his right hand and sprung it, cascading all 52 cards so that they traveled the length of the table and pelted against an open wine bottle. After asking Mort to name his card once again, Mr. Jay instructed the guest to look inside the bottle. Mort discovered, curled inside the neck, the three of hearts. The party broke up immediately afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. Doesn't I'm sure they were like, okay, my mind's blown. I've got to go home now. I can't, I can't take it. It's probably really late at night. Richard J. Potash was born in Brooklyn in 1946 and guarded the details of his early life as fiercely as the secret of his tricks. He told the New Yorker that his family moved from Brooklyn to New Jersey when he was a boy and recalled that his father used brill cream on his hair and Colgate on his teeth. Once when I was 10, Mr. J said, I switched the tubes. Here's all you need to know about my father. (laughs) After he brushed his teeth with brill cream, he put the toothpaste in his hair. (laughs) 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 And that's all you need to know. (laughs) Mr. J wrote several books, including one called Cards as Weapons. Oh, that's a great title. It is. It'd be a great name for a band, too. While Mr. J's legacy seemed firmly secured in recent years, in fact, he was the subject of a 2012 documentary called Deceptive Practice, he said that he sometimes struggled to convince people that his tricks were those of an artist, little different from the work of an actor in the theater or a musician in the symphony. I'd have been more easily understood in Elizabethan times, he told People magazine. All my life, I have been on the fringe 
fringes of this world and have been seen as something of an eccentric. I am eccentric. It seems people are now willing to attach some label of respectability to me. That is not displeasing. It is rather gratifying. But it has made me no less eccentric. Ricky J., magician whose sleight of hand defied logic and physics, he was only 72. Wow. Are you a fan of magic, Tom? Is that, mm-hmm. is that one of the things that you've tried? <laughs> Didn't we all go through a yeah. magic We probably phase? did. I, I yeah. had that, it's my, I had my that favorite. Book. Yeah. Right. Which book? All I remember was that it, it was like a golden book or something, and, and it was like how to do magic tricks and the, the, the drawings of, the, of, 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 of kids in tuxedos, you know, and, yeah. and yeah. presto changeo, you know. I think I had that book. It was by Joseph Leeming. That was one of the Christmas presents when I was in fourth or fifth grade. I was getting my magic kit, my right, magic sure. set. Great which Christmas is gonna, gifts. Yeah, show me how to hide a, like a, a mummy in a coffin, and uh, you would turn rice into water. Fantastic and a, stuff. That fake guillotine that would not slice your finger off. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> if you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best and lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like Tom Bactell, you can go to our website at www.booth-one, that's dash O-N-E dot com, and click on the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any and all contributions, of course, would be greatly appreciated. I want to mention your show once again at uh, Adventureland Gallery, Tom, running through the 29th of December. That's at 1513 Northwestern. And your art is all for sale there, right? It is. It is. Makes a wonderful Christmas gift. I'll say. <laughs> you better rush and get this on the air very quickly. Well, we're going to. We're going we're gonna to get this edited and published as fast as we possibly can, probably uh, well before Christmas. Okay. Yeah, without question. And uh, Adventureland Gallery is open Tuesdays through Saturdays, 11 to 5. That's but I run, suspect run by that the if, famous Tony Fitzpatrick, right? It is, and he has a show going on there, too. Mm-hmm. I guess if you wanted to get in by appointment, you could probably call the Adventureland Gallery and, you know, coerce your way in. <laughs> it's not got $10,000 with your name on it, yeah, buddy. Exactly. <laughs> Let me in. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom Bactell, for being our guest today and for being so open and frank about your life and your work. And thank you, Roscoe, for so beautifully filling in the co-host chair in the booth today. Feels like old times. It does feel like old times times. Well, I'll miss you. Aloha, as they say. Aloha. Visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And I'm Roscoe. Saying so long and keep listening. Keep listening.